1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Years later, there's another man that is feeling weak like David. This is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is standing on the walls that surround Jerusalem, the walls that are still incomplete, and he's looking out at the same wilderness that David found himself in all those years before, and he feels absolutely worn out. He's been in charge of one of the biggest building projects in Israel's history, these walls around the city of Jerusalem, and he, he and his people are working night and day to finish those walls, And as he stands on them and looks down, he can tell you they're still not finished. And Israel's neighbors, who happen to also be Israel's enemies, are watching this wall go up around the city of Jerusalem, and they don't want the wall finished. Okay, that wall complicates things for them in terms of warfare and invasion. They don't want it done. And so they look at all those men working on the walls under Nehemiah's direction, and they say this, their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. You can almost imagine Nehemiah standing there on the walls, so worn out, his shoulders are slumped. He has been working night and day to finish this thing. He is weak down to his fingertips. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Nehemiah prays. So apparently, years before, David felt exactly the same way. So it's not the work that's making David feel so weak, although he's working a lot, he's fighting, he's running, he's leading this band of misfit soldiers out in the desert of Ziph. But apparently it's not the work that's getting to David, it is the the loneliness that's making him feel so weak. And I start with Nehemiah because that's a feeling we can all relate to. We can all relate to those moments in our life where we have been working so hard from sunup to sundown on something. We've been working so hard that we feel physically exhausted. This numbness, this weakness just comes over our whole bodies down to our fingertips. We have all felt that way. But, but anyone in here who has struggled with loneliness, with depression, with anxiety, knows that those aren't just feelings you think, they're feelings you feel, you feel in your body, right? That emotional exhaustion turns to physical and you feel just like Nehemiah, you feel weak all the way down to your hands. So like Nehemiah, what David needs is for God to strengthen his hands. His hands are the seat of his power, his ability to get stuff done. He feels so lonely, so burdened by being alone that he feels like he can't do what he needs to do, not just think what he needs to think. He needs God to strengthen his hands. 
And it may surprise you, like it does me, that David is lonely because at this moment in 1 Samuel 23, David is actually surrounded by people. He's got this band of guys who have committed themselves to David and are following him wherever he goes. He is anything but alone. But 1 Samuel 22, the chapter just before 23, confirms that people are not necessarily the cure for loneliness. In 1 Samuel 22, you have Saul, who's currently the king in Israel. And so he is surrounded by people constantly pandering to him, meeting his every need, getting him exactly what he wants. And yet Saul is devastatingly lonely. In 1 Samuel 22, he, he kind of looks like, a, like an animal that's been backed into a corner and is just snapping at everything he comes his way. Every person in 1 Samuel 22, Saul's just snapping at them. He distrusts everyone. In fact, he is so lonely that he ultimately has all of the priests killed because he distrusts them. I mean, he is devastatingly lonely. It reminds me, you know, that saying that it's lonely at the top. It's lonely at the top. But I'll tell you it's lonely at the bottom too. Uh, we've talked many times about the prison Bible study we're a part of with Hope Works, and we started a new session a few weeks ago, so a new 14-week session, met some new guys, and so I asked them to tell me their names and tell me the most important thing about them. <clears throat> you know, what, what do they want to be known for? And the first guy said, you know, I'm, I'm Bob Smith and I am loyal, he said. And all the other guys shook their heads. They liked that. And so one by one, every guy was loyal, loyal, loyal. And then we started talking about the book of Jonah, which we're, we were studying here at Highland. And uh, we got to the point in the story of Jonah where Jonah's on this boat with a bunch of other sailors this storm comes that's been sent by God and those other sailors finally in desperation look around and what do they do with Jonah? They throw him off. And one of the guys said, yeah, I get that. He said, you know, there comes a moment when your buddy who's on the run from the law, he's hiding in the back room in your house. The police come, they knock on the door and they say, is your buddy here? And you look around at those police officers and you think for a second and you say, yeah, he's in the back. It's lonely at the bottom too, not just at the top. And isn't that just like life? You know, you, sur you surround yourself with people that you need something from, or you surround yourself with people who need something from you, and both of them let you down, right? You can be as lonely around people as you might be in the, in the belly of a fish like Jonah. So what we think will cure our loneliness is better loyalty, more loyal friends. And I think there's something to that. You know, you just have to look though at the prison to remember that loyalty is actually much harder to come by than we think. Uh, so let me set this stage just before 1 Samuel 23 where we picked up to begin. If you go just a few verses earlier, starting in verse 10, actually just a few verses before verse 10, David learns about this neighboring village. Remember, he's out in the desert. He's on the run for his life from the king of Israel, Saul. Here's about this neighboring village, Keilah. And the thing about Keilah was that it had fortified walls that were already erected. So it could be a place where David could go and find protection instead of the caves he's been living in. So he hears that Keilah is being invaded by another group. And so he decides he'll take his soldiers, go defend Keilah, sure that when he does that, they'll be loyal to him. And so he goes and he rescues them. But then this happens. David said, this is a prayer, Lord, God of Israel, 
your servant has heard definitely that Saul, the king of Israel, his enemy, plans to come to Calah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Calah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, well, will the citizens of Calah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. Okay, basically God tells him, your new friends, you know, the ones you just rescued, yeah, don't count on them. Saul's going to come knocking on the door and they're going to say, oh, David, yeah, he's in the back. What a disappointing answer. You know, it's not only a disappointing answer from those folks at Calah, it's a disappointing answer from God. You know, you've got to be sure that when David's praying to God, he's remembering the promises that God has made to him, that he's going to be king, and instead he finds himself on the run, fighting for his life out in the desert. And when he prays to God, what he wants God to say when he asks if Saul's coming, he wants God to say, no, 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 I'm not going to let Saul come down there and bother you. And he said, and instead, God says, yeah, he's coming. And then he prays, well, won't my new friends from Keilah be loyal to me? And he wants God to say, yes, they'll be loyal. You don't need to worry about them. They're great. They're wonderful. I'm going to ensure their loyalty. And God says, nope, can't trust them. And it's not just that David's lonely with his old friends. He's lonely with his new friends. He's not just lonely with his new friends. He's lonely in the very moment he's talking to God. He is lonely with, with God. And he's feeling it. You know, he is feeling weak down to his fingers. So let me ask you, if that was you, if you were David, and you were feeling like that, who would come your way? Is there a person in your life who would know what you were going through and rise like Jonathan did and come and find you without being called? I mean, do you have that kind of person in your life? Uh, Kira Asatran is her name. She is a relationship coach, I've written a series of articles in a book. I stumbled upon one of her articles in preparing for this, and she said something that really struck me. She said she went into the relationship coach business because in her own life, she couldn't understand why her relationships didn't work. And not, not just her intimate relationships, she's talking about her friendships. She said she would be surrounded by friends, people all around her, but she, she still felt really lonely. She said it, it, it took her a long time to figure out the reason she felt lonely, even surrounded by people, was not the absence of relationships. She had relationships. She felt lonely because of the absence of a certain kind of feeling in her relationships. And she calls that feeling closeness, closeness. And you know what she's talking about even if you don't read the article. Because you hopefully have somebody in your life who really knows you and really cares about you. And when you are at your weakest, if they came through the door, you would feel strength. There's somebody who really knows you and really cares about you, and with them you feel strong. And for David, that person is Jonathan. 
thousand sermons have been preached on David and Jonathan's friendship. I don't have, have the time to go into all the background, but they shouldn't be friends, okay? but they are. But what makes their friendship significant is not because their kids are about the same age and like to have play dates. What makes their friendship significant is not that they like the same sports team or that they golf together in retirement. What makes their friendship significant is because none of those accidental features define their relationship. Their relationship is defined by something that was purposeful and intentional, and that's a promise. So we find that back in 1 Samuel 20. You have this, we have sworn, this is David and Jonathan, friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between our descendants, your descendants and my descendants forever. And that promise turns out to be true. I mean, that promise is not only enough to make Jonathan rise from Jerusalem and go and find his friend when he's in trouble, but it's also a promise that's enough that after Jonathan dies, that promise leads David to find his descendant Mephibosheth and bring him into his home. It is a lasting promise. It is a relationship built on a covenant. Let me pause here and say, you need this. You need a friendship like this. I was with a dear brother at the hospital a few weeks ago. He and his wife were going through something awful. And I walked in to find him in the waiting room with another Highlander who was already there when he showed up. And over the course of the day we spent there, so many people from this church came. And over the next few days, even more from this church came and called him, texted him, or showed up at the hospital for he and his wife. And I'll never forget on that first day, right in the thick of the worst part of it, we were sitting in the waiting room, and he looked at me and he said, Eric, how do people do it without a church family? I said, I don't know. He said, there's this couple next to us going through the exact same thing we are. And they have been alone all day. He said, I don't know how you bear it alone. And I don't know either. You know, there's a lot of people that take church membership not very seriously. You know, something's said that upsets them, they go somewhere else. And pretty soon something's said over there that upsets them and they go somewhere else. I mean, there's, there's people like that. But I'll tell you, those people I saw in the hospital that day, believe that the promise they made to this church is a promise they made to the people of this church, right? That they are bound by something more significant than what they think or what news station they watch or listen to. They are bound by a promise made in the sight of God so that when their brothers and sisters in this place feel weakest, they are bound by that promise to go and give them strength. And it's not burdensome, it is life-giving because it is a promise that is inspired, that is supported, that is undergirded by the promise and faithfulness of God. And you need that. You know, of course we think we don't need it. You know, David never imagined he'd be in this situation. You may remember David is the giant slayer. He's the one who's killed his tens of thousands. He's the hero of Israel. And now he's on the run in the desert with just a couple guys around him. Everybody he comes into contact with totally disappointing him. He feels absolutely weak. We never see it coming. We never see it, never have. 
Uh, you know, I'm reminded of a friend, I think I've shared this before, who, who says this to me often. He says, Eric, we are all of us always either heading into a crisis, heading out of a crisis, or smack dab in the middle of a crisis. You know, isn't that right? He's not my most pastorally sensitive friend. <laughs> but isn't that so true? And the thing about David is that if he had waited until his crisis begun to find somebody to lean on, there would have been nobody there to lean on. But this is what's so important. David made a covenant before his crisis. He made a covenant before his crisis so that when the crisis comes, Jonathan knows without being called, rises and goes to find his friend in the desert of Ziph. And it's not like he stopped by on the way to Kroger. He gets up and goes 30 miles by foot, climbing mountains and valleys, looking in caves until he finds his friend and can strengthen his hand in God. I love that line, strengthen his hand in God. Can we throw that on the screen? This is the only time that phrase is used in the whole Bible, strengthen his hand in God. It's the only time those last two words are tacked on the end of that phrase, strengthened his hand, I should be clear, strengthen his hand in God. And it's those last two words that really matter. You know, with Nehemiah, what he needs is for God to strengthen his hands. That's what he prays for on those still incomplete walls surrounding Jerusalem. But this is a really fascinating story here in 1 Samuel 23, because this is the only place that a person strengthens another person's hand in God. And it's those last two words that really matter. You know, anybody can encourage somebody else, just like anybody can disappoint somebody else. It's encouraging someone else in God. It's strengthening their hands in God that separates what Jonathan does for David and separates what those in the church do for others in the church than what the rest of the world is capable of. And notice how Jonathan does it. Look back at the, the larger text, starting in verse 16. Jonathan saw son rose, he rises, and he goes to his friend David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. But then look at this. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. What is that bold section there in yellow? You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Okay, that's the promise of God to David. Here, here's the most significant thing Jonathan does for his friend. He goes and he reminds him of God's promises and God's faithfulness. Okay, the source of David's new strength is not ultimately his friend. It's his friend's ability to point him to the one from whose strength really comes. You see the difference? It's not just that your friend shows up, but that your friend shows up and reminds you of the faithfulness of God. 1792, there was a, a group of five guys that began to meet, and eventually they formed a group known as the Baptist Missionary Society, one of the, the most effective, broad-reaching missionary groups in history. But at the beginning, it was a pretty lonely affair. There's just the five of them meeting and kind of dreaming together these big dreams of spreading the gospel across the earth. By all accounts, they really loved each other, and they spent most of their time together just encouraging each other. Eventually, one of them, William Carey, which is a name you've probably heard before, goes to India to begin mission work in India. And for a year, his four friends don't hear from him. 
You know, this is before email and such. And so finally they get a letter back and Samuel Pierce receives that letter telling of those who are receiving the gospel in India. And he writes this back to his friend, William Carey in India. And this is what he says. The account you gave us inspired us with new vigor and greatly strengthened our hands in the Lord. We read and we wept and praised and prayed. Oh, who but the Christian feels such pleasures as are connected with friendship for our dear Lord, Jesus Christ. I love that last line, a friendship for our dear Lord, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Okay, we're not here to be a social club. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to respond to your complaints or objections, right? We're here to glorify God. And what that means is that every level of this place, okay, every level of this community down to the most common friendship shared among us are friendships for the sake of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's one of the mysteries of the church, of the community of God, of the Christian brotherhood and sisterhood that God appoints us to help each other when we're weak. And it's a further mystery that we, by showing up and pointing to God's faithfulness, can actually do that. We can actually give someone else strength in their body by the power of God. And what God uses our friendships, the promise we have made to each other here in this place, to remind us of the promise of God. And that is a holy responsibility. It's one to take seriously. And I'll tell you, you need friends who take that responsibility seriously. You need it. There's a lot of ways to find those relationships here. I know in a big place like this, to do that, you've got to get small, okay? This covenant that we make when we place membership here applies to everyone here, but you're not going to know everyone here. So to live out that covenant with others, you've got to get small to form those relationships. So let me invite you to consider a couple things. One would be to go to a Sunday school class right after this hour. We've got Sunday school classes scattered around this building. They're great places of community, and you might find that person there. Let me challenge you to sign up for a small group. Our small groups typically break in the summer, so it's a good time to sign up. You can sign up online. In two weeks, we'll also have signups in the comments. Frankly, it's easier for me if you sign up online, but I'd love for you to sign up on paper out there in two weeks, too. Sign up for a small group and we'll work to find you a group that's right for you and we'll place you in one of those groups in August. Or let me encourage you to join one of our ministries. We will have an engaged class coming up in September. That's a place where you can learn about our ministries. I want you to serve alongside people so that that covenant you've made in the sight of God might be ratified on earth among God's people. There will come a moment in each of our lives that we did not see coming, that will knock us off our feet, that'll feel like a, a punch knocks the wind out of us, knocks the, the strength out of us. And at that moment, if you have not made this kind of covenant, if you don't have that kind of person, you will feel so alone but if you can make that covenant before the crisis, 
will be there. And you'll praise God because of it. Let's stand and sing. We're going to finish out with announcements and a little bit more worship. Let's praise God together. His divine power has given us.